Right now on Tech Radio, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, especially if you're an AI. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 978. Later on, as this weekend, France celebrates Bastille Day. We will be looking at new powers the state there has in relation to your tech. And we'll also be looking into why Ireland is a great place to do research about conditions in outer space. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Our editor-in-chief, Nala Kitson, joins us as always. Just before we get into Bastille Day, the other big day that we had this week, Nile, was Prime Day. Prime Day. With Amazon. Did you buy any rubbish on Prime Day? I'm I'm always a a little bit sceptical of these things because... You know, the way people get very excited about the sales in January, it's like the sales is just the stuff they couldn't sell over Christmas. They're just looking to get rid of it. So what happens at Prime Day? Do you end up buying rubbish on Prime Day that you never had any interest in? It's just you buy it because it's cheap. Or Dusty, did you buy anything that was useful? I'm getting a little bit better. I have on many occasions bought stuff just because it was cheap and then never used it many times. I'm getting wiser and wiser now. And I have an Amazon wish list. And I just add things to that. And if I need something immediately, I'll buy it immediately. But if it's just a meh, whatever, I wait until Prime Day or I wait until the uh, the Black Friday sale that they have uh, towards Christmas. And I'll buy it then. So I'm very well aware of what the price is. And if it is a good reduction, well, then, then I will get it. There was one particular item. It's not technology, but it was for the home. Uh, it was 150 euro uh, and has been for ages and ages and ages. And Prime Day, it was down to 120. Okay, that's not bad. And here's 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 where I'm getting a little bit more sensible in my life. And I disappoint myself greatly because when I saw I was going to save 30 quid, I went, but do I need it? And something in my head went, well, you don't really need it. And I didn't buy it. I'm very disappointed. Your your inner Marie Kondo has taken over. Mm. However, I did see a uh, USB hub and I went, oh, I really need one of them. <laughs> so that's on the way. Uh, just a, a seven port, but it's a powered USB hub because a lot of those pub hubs don't um, have enough power. Or they're not able to draw enough power from your PC or your laptop to actually drive all of the devices. So this one also plugs into the wall. So I'll be interested to see how that comes out. And then uh, and then a pure, because I didn't need it, but I bought it because it was a good price, um, was the Soundcore A40. They're kind of like a, a budget set of iPods, if you like. Um, uh, and they're meant to be very, very good headphones. And I was looking around when I saw it. I went, that's a good price. Um, I did a quick search online and on YouTube and everybody seems to be raving about them. So I Great. Nice, nice uh, AirPod alternative. Mm, there you go. So that's kind of what I did. Other than that, nothing, nothing really to to report. Uh, did you did you indulge yourself? I did not. I did not <gasps> because I know that if I ordered something that I do not have an immediate justification for, it would not go down well. You, my friend, have management problems, is what you're telling us. Then, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That was Prime Day. The other thing, of course, this weekend is Bastille Day. And the reason we're kind of mentioning, well, aside from saying congratulations, France, on your version of St. Patrick's Day, um, they are bringing in new laws which will affect how police are able to access people's smartphones. And here's the bit that scares the bejesus out of me. 
The law has almost been passed where in France police will be able to remotely activate cameras, microphones and GPS location on smartphones. Yeah, on one level, I'm Without terrified. knowing. I, that, that, that terrifies me. I, I understand. But on like, the other, uh, I think it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, I know what we're going to get. It's like, but if you haven't done anything wrong, there's nothing to fear. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah. you know, how long can this information be gathered for and retained? But like, can the police right now switch on my phone and microphone and have it running 24-7? If you were in France, they could, yes. Wow. Wow. Because that was... um Graham Dwyer won his appeal to Europe on the back of uh, some of the mobile phone evidence used to convict mm-hmm. him, which mm-hmm. is why these laws are coming in now for the gathering, retention and disposal of this sort of data. Um, however, you know, he lost his appeal overall um, because there was other evidence that provided a, a strong enough case against him. So we are going to see more cases like this across the European Union where it has opened the box of, okay, well, if we can't hang on to data that was gar- that was gathered this way, how about we look at other ways to gather data and see how long we can hold it on for? Because I think previously under GDPR, was it a year that they could hang on to something that wasn't being sort of a new uh, use for something specifically after. And then seven years, you have to get rid of it totally. But um, yeah, if you, if you were to start an investigation into someone, you have to get rid of the information within a year, I think is. It is quite scary that it can be done. And also in the back of my head, I am thinking about, you know, everybody keeps their data in the cloud now, which sounds like a wonderful mm-hmm. idea. And, you know, Google mm-hmm. and Microsoft will tell you it's all encrypted. Nobody can get at it. Mm, I have my doubts. However, in France, I do have a little bit of good news to uh, to wrap up on this about the police can only uh, uh, activate your camera, mic and GPS. Uh, they firstly have to have a judge approve it. It has to be a very serious case. It can only be for a maximum of six months. If they want to use the geolocation so they're able to know where you are at all times, That they can only do that for a crime if they believe a crime is being committed that has a minimum five-year prison sentence, all right? And best of all, best of all, all right, is that they are not allowed to use this surveillance on sensitive professions such as lawyers or, you'll be happy to hear, journalists. Well, I am very sensitive. So <laughs> that's great. Let's move on to uh, now this data transfer agreement between the EU and uh, and the US. So we've had Facebook being fined 1.2 billion for where they store data and how they handle data and stuff like that. And we have this ongoing thing where you can't hold data on EU citizens in the US. But now it appears that you can. And then I heard somebody else say, well, they may be saying that now, but they're not going to be able to control it in five years time. Niall, you're the expert. What the heck is going on? Yeah, well, it looks like we have uh, a new version of Privacy Shield. Again, this comes down to GDPR and the gentleman's agreement of safe harbor that preceded it for years, which was the assumption that all data transfers were um, considered equal. Of course, then we have the, we had the advent of social media, which turned data into a very important resource. And the US was treating it one way and Europe a very, very different way. And it was ruled that, you know what, safe harbor isn't happening. There was another thing 
uh, Privacy Shield that was meant to be sort of the super duper inheritor of the mantle. Uh, it was just decided that actually no Privacy Shield isn't uh, isn't up to the job either. So now we have another version of the the same kind of agreement. Um, it's called the EU US uh, Data Privacy Framework. This has been years in the making. Um, apparently, the uh, EU the European Commission is happy with it. Uh, they say that yes, it upholds a, a certain standard of protection. Uh, that we want our citizens to have if their data uh, leaves the US, uh, leaves the EU for processing. Um, however, the experts are rain, are chiming in and going, do you know what? It's I give it a year. <laughs> not not you know they they actually give it five years, but on the basis of the the length of time it takes to uh, to actually appeal these things. But yeah, according to um, uh, Nader. Hainan, I'm sure, Nature Hainan, uh, Research VP of Privacy and Data Protection at Gartner. Uh, he's come out and said, do you know what, this just doesn't go far enough. Um, the Court Justice of the European Union uh, has their sort of bar that they want to introduce. This doesn't come close to it. All it will take would be for somebody like a Max Schrams or an Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, or indeed a Digital Rights Ireland, if you will, to uh, to make a complaint and this thing is going to fall down. So once again, we have what amounts to a gentleman's agreement between the EU and the US. It's not uh, It's not going to make any consumer group happy. It's basically going to be in place for the duration of its legislative lifespan, I suppose. And, and then it's going to have to be replaced by something again. Now, I think I am getting a theme, a very strong theme to this week's show, and that's basically trust nobody. So don't trust where you're putting your data, where your data will be kept. Don't trust the price that they're giving you. And don't trust us because we're journalists and we could be snooped upon at any time by the French government. I said at the very start of the show that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, especially if you're an AI. Really interesting case uh, with OpenAI and Meta, where the AI has made a copy copyright infringement. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is this is a story that I was expecting because in previous generations, if you will, of large language large language model uh, research, the original document that AIs have gone back to be trained on uh, was what's called the Enron Corpus. Basically uh, you might remember Enron collapsed. There was this entire database of, of emails that uh, became evidence, therefore entered the public domain. AIs were trained on it to learn how language works. Right? And this was sort of a standard for years. Um, current AIs were trained on uh, Reddit because, again, so much language, so much interaction, very important way of finding you know, how language works, how people interact with each other. Uh, you got to learn somehow. Now it appears that copyrighted works have been used in the training of AIs. So goes the argument from people like Sarah Silverman and Paul Tremblay, the Canadian author, um, raising copyright uh, concerns over uh, the use of OpenAI and Meta. Uh, basically, the argument is both these systems know our work far too well. Ergo, they have clearly copied from it, clearly copied from our work. Uh, and we said uh, we didn't give them any consent to do so. Now, this 
is effectively the same argument as we're hearing come up against AI image generators like Midjourney. It's like, if you have been trained on material that's in the public domain, fine, have at it. You know, that's that's what benefit of public domain is. And 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 the key there being in the public domain, freely available, not copyrighted. Freely available, uh, not under copyright, which uh, copyright is what? The death of the author plus 70 years? At the moment, yeah. Uh, if you're still knocking around, you've got a pretty good copyright uh, claim on your hands. Um, and one of the interesting ways that certainly Paul Tremblay uh, developed his concerns was that he put in, or somebody put in, you know, summarized this book for me. And the summary that came back was far too detailed. <laughs> this was not somebody with a passing uh, familiarity with the book. This was, you know, uh, somebody had actually read it, that level of, of detail. So red flags going off. So let me, let, let me ask a question. You, you've got Reddit and, and various boards and stuff like that. So, you know, that's that's in the public domain, if you like. Uh, you've got Project Gutenberg, all right, which I know was a whole thing about books that are out of copyright. So all the classics, Charles Dickens and all that kind of stuff. It, it was trained on that. But then, uh, and I know from um, a friend who told me that there are other repositories out there where you can download copyrighted books. And essentially it's piracy. And essentially what you're doing is you're able to access thousands and thousands of books do you think that there is a thing here where possibly ChatGPT or a OpenAI or Meta may have downloaded one of these repository? Books 3 is one of them, I know. Uh, yeah, Books 3 uh, came up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting in the sense that these companies do not see themselves as downloading individual works, right? It's not as if somebody woke up in the morning and Sarah Silverman, we've got to have her as part of this data set. She is the missing piece. <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, it's just somebody probably woke up and went, we need a modern contemporary corpus to work with. Otherwise, our models won't be accurate. Uh, people won't be able to relate to them. So people won't use them. So I think this information is being gathered with the view of it being a research asset or a data set as opposed to be a collection of works of art. Um, I guess it's the engineer's perspective versus the, the sort of the artist's perspective versus the, uh, the reader's perspective because nobody has any interest in a corpus of literature the size of what OpenAI and Meta will need. Nobody's going to download that to their Kindle and go, okay, I'm going to go through X number of books because there just isn't the time. What do you, I don't know. What do you think, Dusty? I mean, for me, this is a fairly cut and dried case of copyright infringement. I just want to know a little bit more about the motivation that's involved. Well, listen, it's, it's ease. It's, it's a basic human uh, thing. I'm too lazy. Do you know what I mean? And we all look for shortcuts and whatever. And if there's a repository out there and it's got, you know, kind of a, a million books in it, copyrighted or not copyrighted or whatever. Here's the thing is that your logic would, would be kind of, well, let's suck it in because we're not republishing those books. It's not like we're making those books available top to tail where you are able to uh, do whichever. Um, we are using those books to train, simply just train. So who'll know? 
Who will know? And actually, it's just interesting that Sarah Silverman and the way she has discovered it is she asked the AI to come up with a summary of her book. And the summary was so accurate that obviously it had been ingested into the system without her knowledge or without any compensation or even any credit or anything. like. And that's kind of, you know, you've got to protect your work and your intellectual property. So I kind of get it, but I understand as well why OpenAI and why Meta would also say, well, look, it's not like we're trying to republish the book and flog it or even give it away for free. We're just using it to train this language uh, model. So it's kind of interesting. There's another really interesting case that came out. There's two other uh, small things I want to do about AI. One is a radio host in the States has sued uh, because ChatGPT named him as a defendant in a court case when he wasn't. So oh, here he we is, go. He's, he's suing for defamation. Now, this radio host happens to be somebody who believes in whatever amendment of the Constitution and the right to bear arms. And it's all about, you know, kind of guns and that kind of stuff. So he's a controversial talk show host. All right. Um, but he has been named in some, you know, kind of well-known court case. And ChatGPT said, well, blah, 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 blah. And it was versus this and versus the radio host. And so he's claiming for defamation. I think that's interesting. And the other thing is a story this week where Elon Musk is launching his own AI. Now, there's two things about this. One worries me and one doesn't. One worries me, one really worries me, and one doesn't. <laughs> well, one, one thing I find hilarious, so you, you yes. go with your list. Grant, I'll tell you, firstly, he is uh, what he has described as a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I'm thinking immediately of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the answer, as we know, is... I can't remember, 43 or 42. 42. 42, thank you very much. I was close. Um, so he's doing that. But then he also says that he wants to have a third option against ChatGPT and Bard and all those kind of things, which then does scare me because would you put the man who's done all of those things with Twitter in charge of an artificial intelligence? Well, one of the recent things he has claimed about Twitter uh, when it came to sort of limiting people's access to tweets, because you know that uh, yourself, myself, the great unwashed, we've been on the platform for a while. Uh, we are not blue tick subscribers. Uh, I lost my blue tick because I'm not paying. Um, we are limited to seeing what 600 tweets a day. If you are blue tick, you are limited to 6,000 tweets a day. I think if you are new and unticked, I think it's 300 tweets a day is, is what you can see. And the reason Musk said that he was introducing these limits was because he didn't want large language models uh, being trained off Twitter. Um, so I guess we know a little bit more now about why that was a particular concern of his. Um, so, yeah, right. If that's how he wants to train an AI to be obnoxious and hate filled. Fair <laughs> enough, I suppose. <laughs> he could do it that way. Maybe that's his thinking behind that. I like that. I hadn't considered that. Last story and last thing. Uh, and it's also about ChatGPT uh, this week. And this is funny, right? Um, they have measured a user decline with ChatGPT and requests for information have gone down by 10%. Why? Why, Dusty? Well, I asked ChatGPT, why are your users down 10%? And the answer is because it's the end of the school year. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that is it for the news for this week. Niall Kitson, as always, thanks for keeping us up to date. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. We like to speculate about what the next steps in space exploration will be. Dr. Ankit Verma, an Earth and planetary scientist, has been devoting a lot of time to this question, and in particular, what learnings we can apply from studies here to way out there. Actually, way, way out there, all the way to Mars. Dr. Verma spoke with Gronia Faller from FH Media about solar prospecting and why Ireland is a good place to study it. This conversation originally featured on the podcast from Insight, the Science Foundation Ireland Research Centre for Data Analytics. Dr. Ankit Verma is an Earth and Planetary Scientist in Insight at DCU. He is currently working with Insight on a project to do with solar prospecting. I work on a project called Solar Map. We do solar prospecting in Ireland. So if you don't know what prospecting is, prospecting means like we are estimating potential of the solar energy in Ireland. We use geospatial technology and satellite data to do that. We use satellite images and 3D models generated from those satellite images to calculate the amount of solar radiation that will be received like on the ground and that's how we estimate potential of solar insulation. Our project currently focuses on the urban area. So we aim to estimate the potential of urban solar farm. So we look at the industrial and commercial units in, in Dublin and in Ireland. These commercial and industrial units have very big rooftops. They offer plenty of space to install solar panels because the space is already there. So uh, we need to find out the the best position and the best space where we can install solar panels to gain the maximum output from the solar radiation that is received. So in the northern hemisphere, uh, if you're talking about Earth in the northern hemisphere, if we install solar panels in the south aspect, in the so- so facing south direction, we receive maximum uh, solar insulation. That is vice versa if we go in southern hemisphere. So is this like the solar equivalent of oil and gas exploration? Yeah, like in in geology, we do mineral prospecting and natural resource prospecting. That is the equivalent of solar prospecting. I would never have thought that Ireland would be a good prospect for solar energy. (laughs) Especially not Galway. (laughs) (laughs) I think a friend of mine once asked why am I doing this in Ireland? I just replied that we use solar panels on Mars (laughs) and a lot of space missions beyond Mars. If we can produce energy on Mars, which is like really far from sun than Earth, then definitely we can use solar panels to produce energy in Ireland. Alanka, can you tell us more about your time on Mars? (laughs) (laughs) I have not been in Mars, but I have always been interested. I did a PhD in a subject called planetary geomorphology at Trinity College Dublin. I studied a very novel and a new topic where I tried to understand 
how impact cratering. So first of all, I need to tell you what impact cratering is. Impact cratering is a process when a rock in space, uh, such as asteroid or comet, enters the atmosphere of a planet and collide with the planetary surface. They dug up a hole and those holes are called craters. So in my PhD, I try to understand how that impact cratering process affects the subsequent uh, breakdown of rocks on planetary bodies. This is very challenging thing to do because on Earth we have several geological processes that erodes or erases any evidence of the events that has happened in the past. So most of the impact craters happen like really in the past. So if you remember, like in the news, we have been told that the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid impact that happened 65 million years ago. So in that time, the evidence of the uh, crater uh, is gone. So you won't see any physical evidence that there was a crater. So it will be filled with sediments and uh, dust and everything. So that was a challenge. So I chose a site in Arizona called Barringer Crater. So it's one of the best preserved uh, meteorite impact crater on the planet. It's uh, an analog site for studying uh, surface process on other planetary bodies for planetary geologists. It's like Mecca. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really difficult to get access to this site. And many of Apollo astronauts and uh, current batch of astronauts are trained there. So really cool thing about this impact site was it's made of different kinds of sandstone. It is a kind of sedimentary rocks. But one of the really cool thing we get to see at this site, the same sandstone which is exposed on the walls of the crater is also exposed outside the crater. So we we had the unique opportunity to compare what are the changes that has been done to these rocks due to impact of an asteroid and then how those changes are affecting when these rocks are exposed in the environment. So we know like when the rocks are exposed in the environment they break down. Understanding that is very is very important to understand the evolution of planetary bodies. A lot of people won't realize like how much effective in terms of energy and impact is. It's like anything which is like at very close or at point of impact, it kind of melts or uh, vaporizes. So rocks become into gases. <laughs> when it passes on, it creates fractures and the minerals change into different um, minerals and so a lot of deformation features again the when these deformation features which are existing in these rocks due to impact event when it is exposed to the environment they would respond differently to the rocks which have not undergone those stress due to impact so coming to the bigger picture why we want to know that as a humans, we are uh, explorers and we always wanted to understand how our planet evolved, where we come from, and all those bigger questions. Like, are things different on Mars and Venus or Moon? How it's evolved and what it is made of? As we know, like, when our solar system was very new, we used to get a lot of these Im asteroid impacts. Like, if we look at moons, we see a lot of these craters because 
uh, there is no process such as plate tectonics or erosional processes active at the moment on moon or these planetary bodies which erases the evidence so we know that like these events happened a lot in the past but a planet like mars which is considered dead uh, a lot of scientists think that it was once active there was water flowing on the surface there could have been life on mars but now there is just geological evidence but we don't see it a lot of people think that mars was wet and warm and mars was cold and dry or it was wet and warm for like very small period in geological time scale but understanding the rate of the breakdown of rocks will inform us better about how long this warm and wet period was if the conditions were very close to the earth conditions where the ph of the water is neutral so we know that from the products of the weathering process uh, different minerals so that is the evidence that help us understand like what was the conditions and we know that those conditions can support life on earth we might expect it to happen on mars as well so with all these missions ongoing upcoming missions we look for biosignatures uh, of the microorganisms in the rocks and minerals Wow, it's the life on Mars. Answering all the big questions here on the Insight Podcast. Ankit Verba, thank you so much for joining us. And that was Gronia Fowler talking to Dr. Ankit Verma. If you'd like to learn more about the work carried out at Insight and hear more podcasts with top researchers, do visit our website at insight-centre.org. That website address in the show notes for you right now. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. Just before we go, it's time for one more thing from heaven. Here's Mr. Jobs. As always, there are more stories online we didn't have time to talk about in the podcast today, including a new partnership between Nestle and APC Microbiome. EV startup GoEV gets a funding boost, and there is a new owner at Athlone-based Sidero. You'll find these stories and more online at techcentral.ie. Thanks, Steve. We're back again next Friday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And remember, you can always get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player if you haven't done so already. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, as always, take care. Thanks for listening. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.